Hello there, and welcome to a new episode of the Hyperbaric Reviews with your two hosts, two men who have never fisted anything with their toes. It's Bread Roll and JT. You know, <laughs> hello everyone. Yeah, don't know what to say about that one. Bread roll, just keep quiet. I think. Um, so we're back <laughs> again, and we're um, back in festive spirit. Now, there's probably an argument with this one, which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about in a second. Is it or isn't it a Christmas film? So, what are we looking at this week, Bread Roll? Well, I'm glad you asked, JT, because it is one of those ones that has always uh, split the vote a little bit, hasn't it? Really, but um, we are looking at Die Hard, which is based off of the book Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe. It came out on July 15th, 1988, with a uh, running time of 132 minutes. It had a budget of between 25 and 35 million, and it came back with between 139.8 to 141.5 million, so it absolutely stonked it when it came out. Even though it is a movie set at Christmas, it came out in the middle of the summer. For some reason, to go and watch it, and um, yeah, blew the box office away. Yeah, another summer blockbuster a la Jaws um, all those weeks back, which was the first of its kind, wasn't it? The summer blockbuster. Yeah, it's strange, mm. isn't it? I mean, maybe it coming out in mid-July shows it wasn't a Christmas film. Um, we've obviously said it is. That's why we're doing it in December. Um, I did ask Kirsty earlier if she thought it was a Christmas film. She said a resounding no. So I don't know. Like I say, everyone has different opinions on this. It's actually been shown in uh, a couple of local cinemas around here near me in Sheffield in Leeds. So obviously Yorkshire seems to think it's a, it's a Christmas film. I don't know if that's nationwide or just around here. So, yeah, let us know if you think it's a Christmas film or not. Absolutely. I mean, my argument is that it is a Christmas movie because any movie that's based in, at Christmas and season and focuses heavily on it, Ergo is a Christmas movie. And I know it came out in July, which is probably just the box office a bit funky back then. And action movies probably weren't synonymous with, uh, you know, Jolly St. Nick and whatnot. So, um, but in my opinion, it is a Christmas movie because that is literally the main focus throughout the, uh, the movie, other than obviously the heist that's happening. Absolutely. I mean, it was a bit of a risk as well, wasn't it? Carson old Bruce Willis is um, the sort of main protagonist in this film. I mean, so many people were offered the role, weren't they? Um, Stallone, Richard Gere, Clint Eastwood, Harrison Ford, Burt Reynolds, Nick Nolte, Mel Gibson, Don Johnson, Richard Dean Anderson, Paul Newman, James Caan, Al Pacino, and also our old friend Arnie. So, I mean, so many people were offered the role. Um, apparently, Arnie um, turned it down because he wanted to go off and do some comedy and went off and did Twins. Whether that was a good idea for him or not, I don't know. Um, and Bruce Willis only got it. I saw this on Wiki, so hopefully it's true. Um, he was doing, obviously, Moonlighting with uh, Sybil Shepherd at the time. That's where his fame had come from. She uh, fell pregnant during filming, so they gave him eight weeks off, and he went off and filmed this in those eight weeks. So, yeah, fair play to him. But it was a bit of a risk, I think, because he wasn't really known for this kind of genre of film. But I think he was perfect in the role without giving too much away. Now, he is a good cast for this, and obviously we'll, we'll discuss it a bit further. But, yeah, it was a massive risk, and it's strange, isn't it? All those people all turning it down. I mean, this early 90s, um, oh, this is like 88, but around this sort of time, there was a kind of change in the uh, dynamic of action movies, like... Obviously, the big boys, Arnie and Stallone, they were both off of the part and said no for various reasons. Um, but this is like when we started to get the action star that was a bit more the kind of the everyday man, wasn't mm. it? Obviously, Arnie and Stallone, Dolph Lundgren and such, they're all built like brick shit houses, and they're amazing at their action movies. Obviously, big fans of Arnie and uh, like a bit of Stallone too. But around this sort of time is when we started to see the rise of people like Bruce Willis, uh, even like Mel Gibson and people like with Lethal Weapon and whatnot. It's more of like the kind of just the regular guy 
action hero, wasn't it? Instead of just a big hulking guy who looks like he's fucking eats steroids for breakfast. <laughs> Absolutely. And he, he does fit this role. He's more believable as a cop, as most of those people just listed there. I mean, some would have got away with it. Gibson, Don Johnson both played cops anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean, Arnie just wouldn't have fitted this, would he? In bloody great frame, hulking around in lift shafts and that wouldn't have worked, really. No, I mean, Arnie and Stallone nowadays, I think I think of the two, Stallone probably had the more varied career with the type of roles he took. Um, but Arnie, yeah, in his heyday, he was just too big to play the everyday man, wasn't he? When he got a bit older and nowadays and stuff, obviously, he can get away with it. But yeah, it just wouldn't have worked because, like you say, Arnie trying to cr- crawl through a vent, that wouldn't fucking happen, would it? I've got a gun stuck, I can't give me bicep in. <laughs> Yeah, it could have been quite funny, though. I'd like to have seen it, <laughs> but maybe it wouldn't have done as well as it did. Um, I mean, this was one of my favourite films when I was still at school. Another one, I mean, it's not as violent as some of the films we've covered that we watched when we were at school. But I mean, again, it's probably one I shouldn't have been watching. I think it was an 18 back then. It might have been downgraded to a 15 now. Um, I mean, it did spawn some good sequels as well, although they do get increasingly ridiculous as they go along. But obviously, this is the daddy, really. Um, is it a 15 now, Brad Roll, or is it still an 18? I think it might be a 15 now. Um but yeah, I definitely remember it being an 18. And you're right, the sequels, Die Hard 1, 2, and 3, I used to watch a lot of when I was a kid because it was a sort of action movies. Like you say, they weren't mega violent, like Robocop Terminator style. So when they are always on around the Christmas time, my parents always used to let me watch them. They didn't really care. It's kind of almost like a family movie. It's like, oh yeah, we can watch Die Hard. It was usually a bit edited on TV. But um, yeah, I used to watch these all the time as a kid. Um, but yeah, I think it has been downgraded. And um, just before we do get started, obviously we know it kind of gave Bruce Willis the start of his career. It's also the first movie for Alan Rickman, wasn't it? And he got cast out of the fucking blue. An English kind of thespian to play a German pretending to be American. So who the fuck thought <laughs> that up? I'm glad they did because Alan Rickman's amazing. He is amazing, isn't he? Isn't he? Yeah. yeah, it's a strange one, isn't it? But again, he plays the role really well. And like, not your typical villain either. He's more suave and sophisticated than the people that Arnie and you know, those sort of guys have come up against. Um, yeah, yeah, different, but um, it works. Yeah. So uh, let's take a look at the old synopsis and uh, JT. So as always, we pulled this from Wikipedia. So thank you to whoever has written this. Uh, as everyone knows, who listens to us. I haven't proofread this because I never do. So I might stumble over my words a couple of times. Apologies in advance. But uh, here we go. So on Christmas Eve, New York police detective uh, John McClane arrives in Los Angeles, hoping to reconcile with his estranged wife, Holly, at a party held by her employer, the Nakatomi Corporation. He's driven to Nakatomi Plaza by a limo driver, Argyle, who offers to wait for McLean in the garage. While McLean changes clothes, the tower is seized by German radical Hans Gruber and his heavily armed team, including Carl and Theo. Everyone in the tower is taken hostage except for McLean, who slips away, and Argyle, who remains oblivious to the events. So there's a nice short and sweet opening to this movie. What's your thoughts there, JT? Well, do you know, it's been quite a few years since I watched this film, so I kind of had forgotten how it started, which is the case for a lot of these older films. Um, I mean, it opens with old Willis on the plane, doesn't it, talking to the guy next to him, and he gives him the advice about walking around um, barefoot and making fists with your toes. Obviously, not for what Bruce Willis does it for a bit later on, but it's um, for, obviously, uh, you get thrombosis or something when you've been uh, in a plane for a while. Mm. <laughs> One thing I did notice as well, he, he gets off the plane and he glances at this sort of, like, air hostess and he's like hello and they both give each other quite a a sexual glance for like a couple of seconds as they walk off the plane i'm like all right cheesing people up he's going to meet his ex-wife so he wants to be careful he's an absolute perv in this he does it several times because he eyes up the air hostess and then like he sees some um bird in the uh in the sort of um the 
the run the at the airport and stuff like she runs up and hugs her boyfriend and like obviously it's la it's supposed to be christmas but it looks like it's about a thousand degrees so everyone's like just wearing like shorts and skimpy stuff one thing i did think though is when he's on the plane the guy's like oh yeah make fist with your toes i've been doing it for you like five years or whatever or, or 10 years and then as willis is getting his um baggage out the guy spots the gun that he's got on him and he's like, oh don't worry i'm a cop trust me i've been doing it for 11 years I'm thinking, even if you were a cop, and granted, this is way before 9-11, would they have been able to take a gun onto an airplane? I just don't know. I know it's obviously back in the day, but I just don't think that would be a thing. I don't know. Hmm, good question. Yeah, I don't know. I've never even thought of that. But yeah, he does notice his gun, doesn't he? And he, that's when he says, I mean, it sets it up quite well, doesn't it? He, he tells the guys off to see his ex-wife or whatever, and then he says, oh, that's our guy, I think he tells he's going to go and see his ex-wife. The guy sees his gun, he tells him he's a, he's a cop. So you don't need a backstory, do you? You already know who Bruce Willis is or John McClane is by this point. You don't need any kind of backstory because it kind of explains it as it opens up. And then when we do cut inside the old Nakatomi Tomy Plaza, the party's in full swing already, isn't it? Everyone's on it. That fucking dickhead, what's his name? Oh, oh, what's Alice. Guy's, Ellis is taking coke on like um, his wife's desk, isn't he? Like old um, Holly comes in, she takes Bruce into the, well, John McClane into her office and uh, to get chains and that. And he's there sniffing a line of coke on her desk. Yeah, because I love the way you've got Mr. Takagi, haven't you? Obviously, the, the movie yeah. and shake of the business. He's like, Ellis, this is uh, Holly's husband, Holly's policeman. And he's got like <laughs> fucking like, mustache and um, Bruce Willis or John McClane just like, you miss some. And so I just sort of like brushes it off. But yeah, fucking Ellis is the right bell end, isn't he? But I do actually really like Mr. Uh, Takagi. He seems like a genuinely nice sort of character, doesn't he? Obviously, he doesn't last particularly long in the movie. Yeah, he does, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, Ellis is a knob, isn't he? Because before we see him taking the coke, he's cheesing up um, Holly, isn't he? Trying to sort of get with her and that and everything. And um, that's when we first get introduced to him. And she's still got the picture of her family in the office, but then she turns it upside down and she calls Hope, doesn't she? And then um, she talks to the nanny. So again, we've been introduced sort of her as well. So it does a really good way of sort of introducing everyone into this film about sort of too much depth, doesn't it? It does. And again, it's clever because I think, Again, just for an action movie, which I know it's based on a book. We have got the book. Rachel's read it. I've never actually sat and read it. Maybe I should. But um, I don't know how much it goes into. But you kind of, it really focuses on the the situation between John and Holly, doesn't it? Like, because when he turns up to Nakatomi, and this is the thing I thought, there's like a touch screen in the foyer, isn't it? And the guy behind the oh, desk, yeah. oh yeah, type the name in there. And I'm thinking, would they have had touch screen? Because this is like a proper CRT screen. You'd have to hit it with a hammer to get it to fucking <laughs> recognise it. But anyway, he types it in and she's using her... um her sort of maiden name, isn't she? Like prior to being married, it's Holly yeah. Gennaro and stuff. And like you really get the situation, there's just massive just kind of gap between them and you don't really know. It's like she's moved out to LA for a career. He stayed in New York because he's got a backlog of people he's got to put away, which he mentions later. But he does a good job of kind of setting up the domestic side of things and their relationship. Yeah, yeah, it really does. And obviously we meet Argyle as well in between all that. And he's quite a cool character, isn't he? He says it's his first time driving a limo because John says, oh, it's my first time in a limo. He's like, that's all right. It's my first time driving one. Then he puts um, Run DMC, Christmas in Hollis, on the, on the old stereo. He used to love that track <laughs> back in the day. And um, he's pretty decent though, Argyle, isn't he? He's like, yeah, if you, um, if you score your wife or ex-wife, obviously call me and I'll, I'll go. If not, I'll wait for you. So he's a pretty decent guy. Yeah, yeah, he's um, pretty sound, isn't he? Because... Um... And then he's just like a few times we see him, he just sat down in the um the sort of garage, isn't he? He's like drinking all the fucking minibar stuff and everything. And he's just like, it's like, how are you going to drive him home afterwards? You're pissed. But of course, well, um... I was going to say that probably explains what he does a little bit later on because um he does he sort of crashes the limo in the sort of very last scene. But obviously we're way off getting to that bit. But yeah, I thought that. I'm thinking if McLean does suddenly phone you and say I need a lift home or whatever, he's going to be smashed. He's like pouring these little mini fucking 
like, I don't know, vodkas, whiskies, isn't he? He's, he's smashing them back. Yeah, absolutely. And um, then obviously to, to wrap this scene up, uh, we obviously see the arrival of Hans and his crew and it starts off with Theo and Carl coming in the front door, don't you? And um, shoot the guard and Theo's in there on the computer shutting stuff down and the rest of them sort of come in and fucking, I've always found this bit really weird. Like Theo just does this really weird kind of like mouth trumpet stuff while he's doing the computers and he's just like, I'm really annoying. He's like this like proper bad kind of dude he's a ballet dancer in real life apparently oh really he's kind of got that physique he's quite muscly but I, I can kind of see that he's sort of yeah I, I could kind of see that but um, it's quite funny as well because John calls um, Argyle one of the guys is like hot wiring the phones and he's sort of saying to him well, I'm not really sure what's going on at the moment and then the other guy just comes up and starts chainsawing all those pipes doesn't he the guy's like trying to hot wire them doing it all technical and he just comes up and just goes just fucking saws the bloody pipes in half he does, yeah. And that guy is um in the movie, it's Carl's brother, but he looks like fucking Jeffrey Dahmer, doesn't he? Comes in with like his fucking big almost like see through aviators and stuff and his little sweater and everything. I was thinking, fucking hell, it's Jeffrey Dahmer come to Nakatomi. Yeah, that's true. And then obviously John hears all the gunfire and that kicking off with Gruber's men and um he sees all the carnage. <laughs> there's one scene that did make me laugh. Typical eighties film. There's gotta be some boobs in an eighties film, isn't there? It's, of course all, it's all kicking off and there's two people getting on in one of the offices, isn't there? And the woman's got her shirt open. It's just no point for that scene. It's just oh, it's an eighties film, we need to get some tits in there somewhere. Absolutely. And also as well, it's like they're they're shagging obviously on the desk of the office that's like on the corner right next to the party and they haven't got the fucking blinds pulled or anything <laughs> like that. And it's like, what is it with Yanks? Why can't you pull curtains or like pull your blinds or anything? There's always just blinds that are just left wide open in these films. That's very true. I mean, you know, if I was going off for a sneaky bit of hanky panky in the middle of an office party, I think I'd be wanting a little bit of discretion and shutting the door and putting the blinds down, but there we go, they don't. Um and then Gruber gives a sort of bit of a speech to the hostages, doesn't he? And that's when he asks for Mr. Takagi. And he takes him in that room. There's all the sort of models of all the things that they're they're planning the corporation. That's quite cool. I like that room. Yeah, it's really cool. And there's quite a lot of detail put into like the Nakatomi Plaza, considering the budget was fairly modest. One thing that I thought was a bit strange is obviously Gruber, he lines everyone up and he's like, I'm looking for Mr. Takagi, who, you know, born 1932 and emigrated to America in 1937 and all that sort of stuff. And he reels off this massive thing. It's like, if you've done this much research on this bloke, you must know what he looks like. Surely you've seen a picture of him in, like, I don't know, Wall Street Times or whatever it is, because you've got literally his entire life's profile. You'd know what he looks like. That's a really good shout, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the internet wasn't really a thing back then. It might have just been starting, but it certainly wasn't a big thing. But yeah, he he would have seen a picture of him somewhere. Like you say, he knows bloody his shoe size almost. You, you just mentioned there about the Nakatomi Plaza. That was um, the actual studio's building it was um it was their building it belonged to them so they were able to sort of kid it out for this film apparently oh fair probably shaved a few quid off the budget doing that but um yeah that's pretty cool yeah exactly another fact from wiki but i believe that is true i think that was on that movies that made us as well so i'm pretty sure that is true oh fair um so now gruber is posing as a terrorist um to steal 640 million in untraceable bearer bonds in the building's vault he kills executive Joseph Takagi after failing to extract the access code from him and tasks Theo with breaking into the vault. The terrorists are alerted to McLean's presence and one of them, Tony, is sent after him. McLean kills Tony and takes his weapon and radio, which he uses to contact the skeptical Los Angeles Police Department. Sergeant Al Powell is sent to investigate. Meanwhile, McLean kills more terrorists and recovers a bag of C4 and detonators. 
Having found another, having found nothing amiss, Powell is about to leave until McLean drops a terrorist corpse onto his car. After Powell calls for backup, a SWAT team attempt to storm the building, but is assaulted by the terrorists. McLean throws some C4 down an elevator shaft, causing an explosion that kills some of the terrorists and ends the assault. There's a bit of a chunk there, that bit where um, Groover's interrogating Takagi, and McLean's like in the next room, isn't it? And he's like trying to figure out like what's going on and eavesdropping that, but um. That's actually a really good scene, I think, um, the way it's kind of building up. And then um, the guy's just like, I don't know the code, you just got to kill me. And then Hans like, okay, and just fucking shoots him. I know, it's pretty brutal, isn't it? Old, um, Hans is like, I'm going to count to three, there won't be a four. One, what's the code? Two, he's like, I don't know the code. Three, and then that's when he says, I'm going to have to kill you, you're going to have to kill me. He's like, okay, bang, just blows his head out. And you see sort of the bullet and it's the blood splat up the window. It's pretty, pretty gnarly. Yeah, and that bit when they're in the elevator, because like you said at the start there, and rightfully so, he's quite a suave guy, isn't he? He's like, nice suit. Now, John Phillips, London, I have two myself. Yeah. And this fucking wanders off. And then like you say, he's looking at all the models and everything, and he's like giving it all the jazz. And after he fucking kills Takagi, there's a really sly bit where fucking Carl hands Theo like 20 bucks or something like that, like they had a bet of whether they'd be able to get the code out. And I just love that little background bit. Oh, do you know, I never noticed that. Oh, bad me. No, I never even noticed that. It does um, cut to old Argyle there. We say he's in the car, we said earlier. And he's he's chatting up some woman on the phone, isn't he? Drinking, going, yeah, I'll be out in a bit and everything. So he's living the dream downstairs, un- totally unaware of what's going on upstairs in, like, uh, what was it, the 30th floor, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's great as well, because like you say, like, all this shit's kicking off. You've got this, like, montage of them taking over and things going on and, like, the fucking gates coming down. And he's just sat there on the phone, like, fucking having a trouser wank. <laughs> he's loving it and then old uh, John McClane he sets off the fire alarm and he thinks he's onto a winner when he sees the fire truck he's like yeah here we go baby and then obviously Gruber turns him around and says it's a false alarm which happens a bit later on obviously when we, we get um, old Powell coming in so they're a bit dubious but one thing I thought right it's all kicking off and they say oh yeah there's been like gunfire and everything they send one squad car I know they kind of they're a bit oh we don't really believe this but they sent more than just one fucking like car wouldn't they well, yeah, you would have thought just by like due diligence and nothing else, like, all right, there's a suspected, like, I don't know, let's say armed thing or whatever. We're just going to send some random guy who's like on his way home because we meet Powell, don't we? He's in the fucking the <laughs> petrol station and stuff, and he's buying like a bag of Twinkies and that. And the, the guy behind the bar, he's not exactly a small bloke himself, he's like looking at him like, I thought you guys just ate donuts. They're for my wife. <laughs> <They're pregnant." laughs> he buys fucking about four million Twinkies. I don't know how many he actually does buy, but he buys a fair old few, doesn't he? He does, because it's fucking hilarious, because obviously he turns up at the um, station. I love, like, McLean. He's like, who's driving this car? Stevie Wonder? As he's, like, kind of, like, and then he goes in and has a look around and comes out and he's like, dispatch, nothing's going on. And then McLean throws the body out and the terrorists start shooting. And as he's driving away, there's fucking Twinkies just flying all over the place in front of his car (laughs) being shot. Yeah, that is quite funny. There are a few sort of almost dark comedy moments in this film, and a few that are probably meant to be funny as well. So quite a good sort of couple of lines in this film. But when um John has the fight with old um I can't remember his name, is it Tony? Yeah, Tony. And, um, they have a bit of a fisticuff, don't they? And end up falling down some stairs. And I'm assuming Tony breaks his neck or something. He's just led there dead at the bottom. But um for once in the film, he tries to nick his shoes, and they don't actually fit. We've talked about this in films before, where they steal clothes and shoes, and they were actually fit. But this time they don't which obviously plays a part a bit later on, the fact that old uh, John McClane has to go around barefoot in the movie. Yeah, because he's basically in a pair of, like, obviously fancy, like almost like suit trousers sort of thing, a vest, and just barefoot, isn't he, bless him? <laughs> but I do love the line he comes out of, and he's like, nine million terrorists in the world, and I've got to kill one with feet smaller than my sister. 
Yeah, you know, it's quite good, isn't it? Because we have commented on that in a fair few of our reviews before, how these clothes do sort of seem to fit the the person. But um, then Hans sort of tells the hostages, oh, he's killed Mr. Tagagi, and uh, Holly's not happy about it. I mean, she really respected him, didn't she, and really liked him. She sort of takes the lead then after that. And then John sends that dead body down. Is it Tony's body down in the lift with that fucking note on him? And it's perfectly written, isn't it? It's like, ho, 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 now I have a machine gun or something. It's like, it's actually perfectly written, like he's stylized it and everything. I don't think he'd have had the time to do it that well. No, he wouldn't. And I do, again, this is random sly things. Like, he's just, they say, like, fought Tony, he's been battered and everything. He's still kind of like panicking because he's just trying to body out the fucking window as well but like you say he has time to write this like perfect little love letter <laughs> on the bloody jumper which is a bit of a classic line and i like the way obviously alan rickman comes in he's like now i have a machine gun ho 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's good and he's so deadpan in this film and then john's up on the roof and then he radios the cops and gruber hears it on the radios um, and I'll tell you, his guys, Carl and whoever the other guy is, they've got some funky sort of mullets, like proper 80s hair going on, haven't they, Gruber's crew? They have, yeah. I mean, they look like they should be advertising Pan 10, not fucking like causing like heist or anything like that. But some of them have like proper bouffant hair, don't they? It's like, all right, guys. Yeah, exactly. And then we get a bit of an 80s shootout, don't we, between um, sort of John and uh, the Gruber's guys on the top of the roof there. And they're, they're a bit shit at shooting at him. I mean, I guess it's quite difficult. There's a lot of sort of. Um, uh, sort of scaffolding almost around and everything. And we get the bit where John run pa- runs past the picture of some topless girls. And the first time he sort of gives it a glance, the second time he runs past it, when he runs back in, he sort of touches them, doesn't he? And he says something like, hello, girls, or something, doesn't he? As he touches them. Yeah, he does. And there's another bit as well. I think it's before Powell turns up. He's like on there and he's like, what the fuck are you going to do, John? Think, think, think. And he looks out the window and across the way, there's like some bird in like a hotel. Well, again, windows wide open, like half naked, just walk around and he starts staring at her. It's like, Fucking hell, I mean, you know, obviously I'm a fan of like the female form as much as any person, but if I was in a hostage situation, I wouldn't be caring about a pair of Jalalabads. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. It's a bit strange, isn't it? It's just typical fucking, like I say, 80s, and they have to get these little bits in. And he's sort of cr- crawling around the vents, isn't he? And then at one point there's a guy underneath him, and he, he's got his pistol, John, and he's pointing it down, but the guy's right underneath him, and he he's shot at the vent a few times, hasn't he? But he's actually missed him. And Jesse's about to get underneath exactly where John is. He gets called away. It's like, oh, here's the movie 101. Yeah, yeah, a bit convenient, that, isn't it? And then we get the old uh, SWAT team coming in, and um, they've got, like, this random armoured car. And then the fucking terrorists have got this, like, massive, like, fucking rocket launcher that they, like, <laughs> nailed to the floor with something in the perfect position to fire as well, which is pretty good, because they didn't even, like, line it up or anything. There's another sly comedy bit here, because Han sends a couple of his geezers down to watch the, sort of, like, the entrance. And one of them sort of, like, takes position on, like, I don't know, like, a sort of sweet bar, doesn't he? And he, like, reaches under and grabs the Hershey bar, and he's just sat there eating fucking candy while he's waiting for the SWAT team to turn up. Yeah, I did think that was quite good. Yeah, and um, when Powell turns up, though, before the SWAT team get in there, he, like, obviously the guy on the, the front desk is one of Gruber's guys, and he's like, yeah, yeah, feel free to look around. He's quite convincing, you know, he looks like your average guy. He's got a good American accent and everything. But Powell's rubbish, isn't he? He literally walks around the corner and just goes, yeah, yeah, there's nothing there, fuck it, and just goes off. It's like, you didn't even look. And there's that random guy who we saw at the start. I think he's already dead by now. But we, we see him at the start when um, McLean first comes in. He's just stood by the lift. And then when Gruber's guys come in, they shoot him. He's got no purpose in the film. I don't know why he's just stood there. Yeah, he's just literally doing absolutely fuck all, isn't he? And um, the bit where Al is sort of walking up, like I say, he's spoken to the guy on the desk. He's like saying, oh, watching the football and just trying to look a bit nonchalant. And as um, I like the camera angle on this because you see sort of, 
uh, power walking up and he's like looking around, but then you see just in the side of the camera, like a guy behind obviously cover, isn't he, with like the gun ready to shoot him pretty much if he didn't turn around or anything. So um, it's a pretty good shot, that one. Yeah, it is. But yeah, his, his um, sort of exploration of the uh, the hotel is not great, is it, or the, the plaza. And then we get a TV crew that gets dispatched as well, which obviously plays a part towards the end as well. They're, they're on the case as well. So you've got the, uh, the, the police are in, the SWAT team are coming in, and we've got a fucking TV crew on the scene as well. Oh, yeah, the two biggest dickheads in this movie is Ellis, as we mentioned, in fucking Dick Thornburg, the bloody, um, the, the, like say, the news guy and everything. He's an absolute fucking twonk, but we'll get to him in a minute. <laughs> oh, yeah, he is, isn't he? But, I mean, Han shows a bit of a human side here because Holly asks, doesn't she sort of says, I'm sort of now the spokesman because Takagi's dead. Um, we've got a pregnant woman here who needs sort of some uh, seat and everything. And can we get the hostages to the bathroom? Otherwise, you're going to have some problems. And he's like, yes, okay, get a chair and we, they can go in groups. So he's showing a bit of his human side there. I mean, he's a complete arsehole, but he's not all horrible, I suppose. Yeah, I guess, which is a bit strange, really, because obviously we find out later on he's got no intention of letting any of them go. But I suppose for the time, he just wants to keep them in, obviously, calm, because obviously that just makes it easier for him to go about his business because he's waiting for the FBI or the the FBI, as he says. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but like you say, when they've got that random rocket launcher, I mean, most of this film I'd forgotten about. There's the odd scene I could remember. But yeah, where did they get that from? I mean, they say they're heavily armed, but fucking rocket launchers, come on. Yeah, yeah, it's fucking ridiculous, isn't it? It's, just, it's not even just like a like a little like shoulder thing. It's this big fucking mounted like anti fucking air thing. It's like bloody hell, king yeah. prepared if nothing else. Exactly, and they get it like I say they get it screwed to the floor pretty quick, and like they're a good shot with it. There's no time to aim it. They just fire, and he fires twice, doesn't he? At the bloody um, RV, and then John show, uh, throws that uh, C4 down the lift shaft. I mean, he nearly kills himself, doesn't he? It comes back up, and he has to jump out of the way. He nearly takes himself out with it. He does, yeah, and that's a hell of a fucking explosion. I mean, I'm no expert in C4 other than what I've seen in like movies and Call of Duty and stuff. But he's got one bit of C4, and they say he lobs it down the shaft, but he takes out like an entire fucking floor. It's like, fuck no, C4 actually that potent. Yeah, I thought that. It's massive, isn't it? I mean, obviously, it's probably for Hollywood drama effects, but yeah, it's fucking huge, isn't it? And then the TV channel, they identify Hans, don't they? They, they sort of get a bit more background on him. And then um, John's mugging off old. Um, Mate, the chief police guy whose name he just uh, he wasn't the name he just said was his name the chief, chief of police he's like having a go at him on the radio calling him a dick and all that and um everyone's sort of arguing with each other at this point the only the only one's got any sense probably is um powell he's the one who's sort of grounded yeah powell's really good because like they've got the swat team and i say i can't remember his name um fucking chief now but come to me in a minute but they're all out there and like the terrorists are like shooting at him and everything and um, he's just like, oh, we've got to take cover. And Powell's like, they're shooting at the lights. Now the lights get blown up. And he's like, oh, they're shooting at the lights. Yeah, and then he sends them in anyway. Well, they're already sort of there. But he doesn't call them back. He's like, call them back. And he leaves. And then they all just get shot. He's like, they're sitting ducks out there. It's like, yeah, I know, because we just said they're shooting at the lights. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now Holly's co-worker, Harry Ellis, attempts to negotiate on Gruber's behalf. When McLean refuses to surrender, Gruber kills Ellis. While checking the explosives on the roof, Gruber encounters McLean and pretends to be an escaped hostage. McLean gives Gruber a gun. Gruber attempts to shoot McLean but finds the weapon is unloaded and it's saved only for the intervention by his terrorists. McLean escapes but is injured by shattered glass and loses the detonators. Outside, the FBI agents take control. They order the power to be shut off, which, as Gruber had anticipated, disables the final vault lock so his team can collect the bonds. 
is where things sort of move along a little bit more, isn't it? And that fucking bit of Ellis where he comes in and he's like, hey, man, I, you know, I, I, I negotiate like billion dollar deals for breakfast. I think I can handle this Euro trash. And he just walked into fucking Hans's office like a fucking greasy sack of shit. It's like, yeah. oh, I fucking hate this bloke. Yeah, I know. There was no tear shed when he gets killed. Um, I mean, he's, I think he's pretty much still high anyway when he's talking to him. She can tell he's got the fucking swagger and the bravado that you would have when, you know, a bit off your tits, shall we say. But then um, Hans radios John, doesn't he, and tells him he knows his name and who he is and everything. And then he puts Ellis on the radio and he's like, do you know who this is? And John's like, Ellis. It's like, you only met him like an hour ago and you've spoken to him twice. How did you recognise him on the radio? It seems a bit coincidental. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, like you say, you met him ages ago. With everything that's been going on, would you really remember him? You probably remember you're that smug git from the party, but like, do you actually remember his name like properly just from the sound of his voice over a crackly radio? Maybe because he was cheesing up his ex-wife. He might have um, stuck in his head a bit more, but I don't know. I just thought it was a bit strange how he seems to know him from just going, you know who this is? It's like, I'd be like, no, who the fuck is this? But um, yeah, then he tells, obviously, Hans, he doesn't know Ellis and everything. He's only just met him. So Hans wipes him out, which um, I wasn't particularly uh, upset about, like I said earlier. Yeah, absolutely. And to be fair, well, not really fair to Ellis because he's an absolute twonk, but he could have gone in there and been like, oh, yeah, he's, you know, Holly's husband or all that sort of stuff. But he's making out like their best friends, doesn't he? Mm. Think you can kind of talk him down. So at least in that regard, it doesn't give it all away because at this point, uh, Hans hasn't put two and two together that obviously they still don't really know who McLean is because he wasn't on the list and he doesn't work for Nakatomi but they just don't know who he is at this point and not the fact that he's married to Holly as well yeah exactly they, they don't work out that until the end who Holly is really do they no they don't because she's obviously um, when she first goes in to speak to Hans like when she asks for the sofa and stuff for the employees he's like Takagi chose his people well Mrs and she's like oh it's Ms Gennaro and Twitch obviously her name's on the door so he doesn't really think much of it from there no, I guess he wouldn't, would he? But then Hans radios the police, doesn't he? He tells him what he wants. Um, he wants the terrorists. He starts listing all these sort of terrorists. I want these people released and these in Northern Ireland and uh, Syria and places like that, isn't it? And the, you have two hours to comply. <laughs> yeah, that's really good. And he's literally, all, the, like, all his um, crew are kind of panicking. It's like, oh, the SWAT team and that's out. And he's like, leave them. I'm just waiting for the FBI. And that's pretty much what he wants throughout the whole movie. Then we got the like, guys like johnson and special agent johnson then he's like there's no relation it's like well yeah one's black and one's white you fool <laughs> yeah exactly i mean i think that's supposed to be a comedy moment isn't it but it's quite well done that bit um and then when obviously um hans goes up and uh, i mean he's been planting the, the detonators up there and john's like what the hell have you been doing up here but to be fair it's quite handy that alan rickman isn't german so he can do quite a convincing american accent as well and he does bump into him he did it really well, didn't he? And I love just how kind of cheesy it is at first. He's like, ah, don't kill me, don't kill me, don't kill me. Just sort of <laughs> really weird over the top thing. And um, but obviously McLean's kind of clocked it a little bit because he's kind of asking him his name and trying to find out a bit of story. And he obviously thinks there's something fishy going on, doesn't he? So he gives him the Beretta, but no bullets in it. And I do like that bit where Hans goes to shoot him and he's like, oops, no bullets. Think I'm fucking stupid, Hans. Yeah, it's cool, isn't it? Because he, he claims to be Bill Clay, doesn't he? So he sees these names on like a a sort of list of names outside an office. He's like, I'm Bill Clay, or William Clay, he calls himself, doesn't he? Or I think, or it might be Bill, and the guy's called William on the door anyway, whatever. And then he does his count to three again when he pulls the gun out, doesn't he? He's like, one, two, but I don't think he even gets to two, and he tries to pull the trigger, and like you say, he's like, oh, no bullets. It's quite cool. That's one of the things I did remember. Yeah, yeah, it is good. And then just at that moment as well, the um, the elevator pings, and Carl and his mate are running out, and he's just like, you are saying... 
And then that bit where fucking McLean's trying to take cover and then he's like, shoot the glass. And just, he gets absolutely battered here, doesn't he? It's one thing about this film I've always remembered is like, McLean takes a fucking pacing in these movies. I mean, normally in these action movies, like the hero gets like battered, but they're all like, still like 100% at the end for the end battle. But McLean gets absolutely fucking ruined in this movie and it looks a complete stay by the end of it. Yeah, he does, doesn't he? It's cool, though. It's a good plan to shoot the glass. Obviously, with his bare feet, because he's clocked, he's got no shoes on. So he's like, yeah, shoot the glass. That's cool. But, yeah, it's pretty gnarly. He's pulling the glass out of his feet in a like, hotel room, like bathroom, whatever. And, and um, he's talking to Powell on the radio. And then it's always the same in these films, isn't it? Powell's got a story how he, he got debadged because he shot a kid. You know, the kid, he, he didn't see him properly. It was dark, whatever. But it always seems to be like... I mean, one of these sort of sad stories about one of the characters in these films, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. Like you say, he's got like the kid, it was dark and like, he had a ray gun or something, didn't he? And he yeah. ended up blowing him away or something, which, but yeah, there's always got to be like this kind of like sob story. I suppose it's just to kind of make them relate to each other on the job a bit more. But yeah, they never just like, can't just be a normal guy on the beat. He's just on his, you know, a normal day at work and this happens. No, not at all. And then when they do finally get into the vault, there's some crazy stuff in there, isn't there? There's like Japanese armour, paintings, and all kinds of weird shit, as well as the bonds they're after. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose back then, I mean, this is what, 88, wasn't it? So that sort of stuff would be easy to move on the black market. But nowadays, I mean, it wouldn't would happen, would it? I don't know. You'd never be able to move that sort of stuff, I wouldn't have thought, not at least without leaving a massive trace behind you. I did always think, I did think that even watching this, it's like, you know, 640 million. I mean, he says they're going to go off and whatever, and they'll, they'll be discovered, so they need to be careful. But yeah, you wouldn't be able to get that kind of shit out and people not know where it was. So now the FBI agrees to Gruber's demands for a helicopter, intending to send gunship helicopters to eliminate the group. McLean realises Gruber's plan to blow the roof and kill the hostages and fake his team's death. Carl, enraged by the death of his brother Tony, attacks McLean and is seemingly killed. Gruber sees a news report by Richard Thornburg on McLean's children and deduces that he is Holly's husband. The hostages are taken to the roof while Gruber keeps Holly with him. McLean drives the hostages from the roof just before Gruber detonates it and destroys the approaching FBI helicopters. Meanwhile, Theo retrieves an escape vehicle from the parking garage and is knocked out by Argyle, who has been following events on his car radio. Uh, so, yeah, this is where everything kind of kicks off a bit now, isn't it? And the fucking, the FBI guys, John, Johnson and Special Agent Johnson, they're right pair of bellends, aren't they? Because they're like, I, I'd imagine in this case, like, they come in and they're like, well, we're taking over straight away and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to take gunships and, you know, get them right up the ass and everything. And they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to take out the hostages and we'll probably lose about 25% of the, the hostages and stuff. And it's like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. I think it really, this is really fucking, I know it's an action movie, but it's like, would the FBI really be like that? Yeah, they always are in these films, though, aren't they? I mean, I don't know what they're like. We're not American, but they're always portrayed in this really sort of bad light and they're always really gung-ho and don't give a shit as long as they get their way. Maybe that's what they're like. I don't know. Let us know if you're American. Um, but we get old um, John on, when he's on the radio and he tells Powell, he's like, find my wife and tell her that I've been a jerk. I was not really sure how he's gonna supposed to find her, but even he says that, doesn't he? He's like... Um, you'll you'll know who she is. I'm not sure how you'll find her, but you will. It's like, well, how will he? How's he going to know who the fuck she is? Well, yeah, considering the only thing that can really save the day at this point is McLean. And he's like, at this point, he's obviously, he's quite injured and everything, isn't he? And he's like kind of fucked and he's thinking he's going to not be able to sort of save her or anything like that. But yeah, I don't know how he's thinking of doing that, especially as he knows the roof's about to be blown up. Yeah. Then we get the sort of the cut to the TV crew. They're at um, Holly's house, aren't they? And they blagged the nanny to come in. So they say they, they're going to call the INS. And that's how they get sort of into her house, isn't it? Get the info. 
Yeah, which I think is obviously a fucking sleazy move to do in that. And um, I do like that, the way the kind of it's shot, because they're all sort of packing up. And um, he's like, get the hostages to the roof and all that sort of stuff. And then he, he's got this really shitty little box TV, hasn't it, as well? Fuck, it's crap. Yeah. I remember I have one of them myself, to be honest, but fucking rubbish. And he sees it and he's like, Mrs. McLean, how nice to make your acquaintance. And he comes out and he like slides along the floor a little bit and starts shooting up. <laughs> Dealing to try and scale the hostages and stuff. He goes all like snazzy for this bit. He does, doesn't he? Yeah, but another it's another movie 101, isn't it? He just happens to see it on the TV just as they're packing up. He's like, oh, okay. <laughs> but <laughs> there's a bit as well. Obviously, Carl and John have a, a bit of a full-on fisticuff here, which um, you always see in these um, films. There's always a big fist fight in there. But just before they start punching the shit out of each other, Carl pokes his gun into John's cheek. And you think, if he's so pissed off about what's happened to his brother, he'd have just pulled the trigger there and then. He wouldn't have fucked about with him. Yeah, yeah, no, you just think, all right, you've fucking done it. And also as well, it's like, you know how Slippery McLean's been. Obviously, they've been at this heist all night and he's been, like, slipping through their fingers all the way through. You'd want to just fucking pop him, wouldn't you, and be like, no, I'm not going to take any fucking chances. I mean, it's a typical villain thing, isn't it? It's like in the Bond movies when they capture Bond and they stand there for about an hour telling him every inch of their grand plan <laughs> just so he can escape and stop it. It's fucking stupid. Yeah, it is. I mean, yeah, I don't know, but obviously the, we get the big fisty fight. Um, we think um, Carl's dead, but um, we'll see what happens to him in a minute. But the bit, obviously, is iconic, isn't it? And again, they, they did a big feature on this, on that the movies that made us. When they do blow the roof off and John's got the um, the fire hose wrapped around him and he sort of jumps down um, and he sort of kicks the window out and swings through it. I think that seems fucking brilliant. It still looks good now, actually. It does. The whole movie actually looks pretty good, um, mm. to be honest, considering its age. I mean, it might be because it's obviously its contained location and everything. It's not trying to be too ridiculous. But yeah, that scene where he jumps off and the fucking explosion goes is amazing. It's a miracle. The threat of uh, the, um, the tube without fire hose didn't get burnt before he um, had a chance to get through the window because that's really tense when he's hanging. And obviously, he knows that all the fire's coming down and he's like kicks himself away, shoots the window. And then the fucking the reel of the... Um, fire hose falls off doesn't it and he pulls him back down to his death so he has to untie it quickly but yeah that's a brilliant sequence yeah it is I love that sequence uh, it's so cool and our guy was like still asleep in the car he somehow manages to like wake up um, even though he's missed everything that's going on and that's when he crashes into Theo doesn't he into the van um, then he just walks up to him and just punches him once and knocks him out doesn't he Theo's a bit of a wet blanket really yeah, I'm a bit of a computer nerd, isn't he? But um, there's an issue here. I don't know if you've uh, clocked this before, but when they first arrive, um, they're obviously in this big black lorry type thing. Door opens and they all walk out and you see a front shot of them exiting. And now Theo's just come back to that same lorry and driven an ambulance out. And the ambulance was not in the back of that lorry at the start and it would have taken up the entire back of it. So how do they fit that in there and all the people? Good shout. Yeah, I think I've I've heard that before. I think that I've, I might have even read it when I was looking at my notes as one of the big goofs in this. Yeah, it's a good point, isn't it? There's no way. But obviously we said earlier that our oh, guy's been drinking all night, so that's probably why. I mean, obviously all he's got to do is drive straight forward and crash into the van. So he managed to do that quite well, but he probably could do that drunk. But I'm not sure about the end bit when he actually does drive off, but we'll get to that. Yeah, well, a bit of Dutch courage and all that sort of stuff does wonders, doesn't it? There's it a cracking, again, one of those comedy lines as well, because obviously Hans has got Holly and he's dragged her down to the vault. And um, she's like, so that's it. After all your speeches and everything, you're just a thief. And he's like, I am an exceptional thief. And since I'm moving up the kidnapping, you should be more polite. That's a fucking <laughs> great line. <laughs> it is good, isn't it? Yeah. And um, this is where I'm um, so just getting towards the end now so a weary and battered McLean finds Holly and Gruber and his remaining henchmen McLean surrenders to Gruber and is about to be shot 
but grabs his concealed service pistol taped to his back and uses the last two bullets to wound Gruber and kill his accomplice. Gruber crashes through a window but grabs only Holly's, uh, onto Holly's wristwatch and makes a last-ditch attempt to kill the pair before McLean unclasps the watch and Gruber falls to his death. Outside, Carl ambushes McLean and Holly but is shot dead by Powell. Holly punches Thornburg, who attempts to interview McLean before Argyle crashes through the parking garage into the limo and drives uh, McLean and Holly away together. So there's the sort of end bit now, and this is where McLean's pretty much completely fucked, and he comes down, and to be fair to him, there was 12 hostages at the start, and he's managed to kill pretty much all of them. There's only Hans and there's one guy left. He's done quite well, hasn't he? Um, but it is really cheesy, that he? he sees that tape um, earlier on, and he tapes the guns to his back, and... Um... He's talking to Gruber, isn't he? And then he makes him start laughing. And then his henchman's laughing as well. And then he, he grabs the guns quickly and he manages to pop them both off before. But obviously he doesn't kill Gruber there and then. But he shoots the other guy cleaning the fucking forehead, doesn't he? It's a pretty good shot considering he had no time to fucking aim at either of them. That's true. And considering, considering he died, he's completely fucked. He must be exhausted. He's been shot himself, so he's probably like lost a load of blood sweating and all that sort of stuff it's a dark crazy room and yeah like you say he pulls off like this amazing crack shot and then we get the bit where hans obviously he's hanging he's got hold of holly and everything and this is the bit where we get like a really slow motion death of hans gruber but they um when they shot it they didn't tell alan rickman they were going to let him go did they because they were like going to drop him off something about 20 feet onto like obviously a safety net and everything and they said oh we'll count to five before we drop you because i think he was afraid of heights and they counted to yes. two and then just let him go so the reaction was like quite genuine because he wasn't ready to be sort of dropped yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was on that um, movies it made us as well. We keep plugging that. It's worth a watch if people haven't seen it. It's on Netflix. Um, do some quite good films, don't they? But yeah, I, I obviously had heard that as well on there. That um, he, he didn't want to do the scene, did he at all? And he was really like, oh, I don't like heights. So they did that. So yeah, fair play. I mean, they drew it out, didn't they? Slow mo of him sort of falling. Then you do get the wide shot of the sort of him actually falling in normal speed to use a better term. You don't actually see him hit the deck, which you never do in these films. Probably a good thing. So I imagine it would have been a bit of a mess. Yeah, absolutely. Especially from that height, was it thirtieth floor, roughly, wasn't it? So yeah, it wasn't going to be a would have been like the end of Dread a few weeks ago, wasn't it? When he oh, throws Mama off that fucking skyscraper. Indeed, but the bit where Carl comes back from the dead. I mean, this film is quite far fetched anyway, but that's just probably one bit a little bit too over the top. I mean, it's in sort of slow mo, and the crowd kind of part, don't they? And there's just Powell stood there conveniently, and he he pops him off, and then he's like, yeah. I'm back again as a cop or whatever but that bit is a bit fucking far-fetched isn't it it's stupid i've never liked this bit because it doesn't make sense because obviously the way carl dies is pretty gnarly like mclean wraps like those chains around his neck and then like fucking pulls him along in this like convey belt thing and he's like hanging there so how he would have survived all this time yeah um especially considering he was like right below the roof which blew up um but anyway <laughs> But also, like, Carl obviously comes back and he's like, pulls a chain off and he stands up. And it's like, why's it got to be Powell that shoots him? There's like loads of SWAT team and everything standing around. What, they've all got their thumbs up their ass or something like that. It's just been a terrible <laughs> situation. They think it's all over. And as Carl has time to stand up, he's still got his fucking gun on him for some reason. <laughs> gun. And Powell shoots him and does this really slow motion pan down on him with this overly dramatic music. Yeah, it's, it's fucking rubbish. I hate this bit at the end. Yeah, stupid, isn't it? And then obviously Holly gives old Thornburg a punch. Good, good right hooks he gives him on live TV. And then they just get into the back of fucking Argyle's limo and drive off. And there's, there's a couple of issues there, isn't it? A, he's been drinking all night, so <laughs> he's probably not the most coherent. And B, I don't think they just let two, the, the, you know, McLean and Holly just drive off after everything that's just happened. You think they'd want to be questioning about exactly what happened and what went on? 
Well, yeah, especially considering John's a cop as well. Obviously, they know it's obviously he needs to debrief and probably needs to go to the hospital. But also, I'm thinking, how the fuck is that limo still going? He crashed it like <laughs> far into a fucking ambulance. Now he's just crashed through the barricade, and somehow it kind of came over the grass. I mean, those things aren't really built for off-roading, but it still works. But like you say, we get this cheesy bit of through the back window of Holly and John kissing, and our guy was like, "Well, this is their Christmas. I got to be around for New Year." Then it just <laughs> kicks in time. The weather outside is frightful. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a weird one, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, um, a couple of issues at the end there, I think. Yeah, absolutely. But um, otherwise, it was a uh, pretty good fun. So um, that pretty much concludes our look at Die Hard. So time to give this one some scores. And is it your turn to go first, JT? I think it might well be, Brad. Well, I'm not sure, but I'll go first if you want anyway. Absolutely, take it away. Okie dokie. So as I said when we were going through this, I'd forgotten how much of this, or amazed, sorry, how much of this film I had forgotten. Some of it came back, but a lot of it I was like, oh yeah, I remember that. Um, I mean, it's such an 80s action film, isn't it? And that's no bad thing. That was the best era for action films, in my opinion, and I think you probably agree with me there, Brad Roll. I mean, Willis is great. We said he was a risk, but perfect in the role. And obviously Alan Rickman as well was a risk. So they both, brilliant, brilliant. Um, in, in both roles. The supporting cast are all good. They all do their thing. All these guys look like they should have been in the Motley crew or something, um, Gruber's guys, but they're all quite good at what they do. Um, I think it's got um, the right sort of mix of action. It's quite cheesy in places. Um, it's just perfect for this genre, isn't it? Because you need a bit of cheese in these 80s films. There's a little bit of comedy here and there. Um, I think it does run a bit long. It's over two hours, isn't it? And some of the scenes are a little bit drawn out, but it flows fairly quickly and the, the action's thick and fast. The only real problem I've got was the ending. You just said there, there's a couple of dodgy bits at the end. Um, I had to think long and hard about how to score this, as it's not perfect, but it is fucking brilliant. But I think just because the end's a bit shit, it does fall slightly short of five others. So I'm going to give this four, but it's a very strong four, and it is teetering on five, um, but it's a very, very strong four for me, Bredwell. What about yourself? Ah, oh, lovely stuff, JT. Um, to be honest, um, we've been obviously up and down a little bit with our uh, scores over the last uh, few weeks obviously you've been scoring stuff high up and doing it low in that but I think I'm near enough going to have to agree with you pretty much point for point on this one um, yeah it's a great action movie and I think it's aged well and that's probably because it is a contained story in a contained location it's just a tower block and there's a heist and even though it is in the 80s I think because they try and put in that kind of um, I don't want to say futuristic but that kind of like high Japanese technology of like the touch screen at the start and then the electromagnetic vault and all that sort of stuff I don't think it feels like a really dated movie and some of the effects, even that big explosion and when the floor blows up, it all looks pretty good to me. Um, some really good sort of pacing. Um, the movie does move along at a pretty good pace, but you're right, it does kind of outstay its welcome just a bit. Um, I think it could have just been nicely tucked in at sort of the two-hour point. Uh, the cast of characters is great and they're all memorable in their own right and it's a very quotable film. Um, considering it is set within a tower block, it's actually a really good bunch of set pieces like they managed to do a lot with the terrain um again like the the bit on the roof is obviously quite iconic some of the shootouts within the floors and some of the locations they end up in because the um the building's still kind of like under construction in the movie um so they managed to make a few varied set pieces within what could have just been everything looking the same so fair play to them for that um yeah it's a good movie good action movie um for me it's definitely a christmas movie but like yourself the ending is just a little bit sloppy and a bit wank and it does kind of bring it down a peg, which from an otherwise enjoyable movie is just a little bit of a wonky ending. So it's going to get four others from me, four good, strong 
milk filled udders. I mean, they might even drip a little bit of eggnog with it being um, <laughs> a Christmas movie. But yeah, four udders from me as well, JT. Oh, good stuff, Brad. Well, yeah, I just think it, it probably would have been five that had a better ending. Just, I don't know, it lets it down a little bit. But yeah, spot on there with um, with the way they've managed to make that one set um, varied. Obviously, there's different floors they're on and stuff. And with it apparently being 20th Century Fox's um, actual building, they could obviously go to town on it a bit more than they would have been with, you know, whatever else they would have been using. But yeah, I think four others, both of us agree on in this one. And I think, um, yeah, spot on. Yeah, well, there we go. So let us know what you think of um, our review of Die Hard. Uh, do you think we scored it appropriately? Um, what are your thoughts? Is it a Christmas movie? Is it not a Christmas movie? Is it a good film? Is it a bad film? We'd love to know uh, your thoughts. So get in touch with us at the Hyperbaric Goats on Twitter. And join us next week as we continue our look at Christmas movies. And we're going to be going to the other end of the spectrum this time. And we're going to be doing Home Alone. Um, so, yeah, be interested to see what scores we come up with for that one. Indeed, yes, a film I haven't seen for a long time. Um, but yeah, completely different, and that is a Christmas movie. So I'm no arguments with that one. Absolutely. So yeah, we look forward um, to hearing anything that you want to send our way. As I say, get in touch on Twitter. Hope you're enjoying the festive period. And this is Bread Roll signing off. And from me, JT, there really is only one last thing I can say. Yippee ki yay, motherfucker. Oh, the weather outside is frightful. But the fire is so delightful Since we've no place to go Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow It doesn't show signs of stopping And I brought some corn for popping The lights are turned down low Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow